You think I beat him the last time, do you? Hmm? You got the decision. Man, I won, but I didn't beat him. What are you afraid of, Tony? Honest? Yeah, honest. He's all wrong for us, baby. I saw you beat that man like I never saw no man get beat before. And the man kept coming after you. And we don't need that kind of man in our life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. My guest hosts, Dan Loria, and I are looking at the sequels of Rocky. Rocky began in 1976, won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Film Editing. Stallone was launched into the Ultra A-List. And since, we've had 896 minutes total from eight films, including Creed and Creed II, we're going to have another Rocky, apparently, and another Creed, so this is going on into the future. But, um, you know, from a budget of $204 million, we're now at $1.7 billion that the Rocky universe has brought in at the box office. Uh, really helped launch Hulk Hogan, won the Cold War for the United States. Um, it's just such a phenomenally strange, bizarre, arresting world to drop into. And uh, both Dan Loria and I <laughs> have done so over the years a fair bit. Um, and we just thought it'd be a lot of fun to look at this. Because a lot of the films I, I feel like I'm drawing from, it's always sort of the darker angles, hence No Happy Endings as a title. But it, I think, also is important to drop into some of the fun of... Uh, how cinema and boxing has been embraced um, by the culture. And is, is there a more amusing, strange world than what is in Stallone's demented imagination? I don't think so. So I hope you enjoy the Rocky sequels on No Happy Endings. All right, Daniel Loria. You intercepted my Twitter account with a lot of Rocky sequel unified theory material. That's <laughs> um, and you said that you've been working for a long time on a piece prior to The New Yorker publishing the unified theory of Rocky movies by Andrew Bujalski. But uh, what drew you to this? You know, it, it's interesting that these are movies that at least the sequels, right, have this reputation of being the sort of films that will play in basic cable on Sunday afternoons for perpetuity. You can travel anywhere in the world. That hotel room at 2 p.m. on a weekend is going to have a Rocky sequel no matter what. Um, and there's something endlessly fascinating for me and that, that's always sort of drawn me into these sequels. I grew up with them, uh, I think, namely as a as a child growing up in the 90s, uh, late 80s. Um, I'm originally from Mexico, growing up from country to country as an expatriate through Latin America before moving to the United States uh, as a teenager. These are movies that always uh, fascinated me um, as a viewer. Uh, I get into graduate school uh, over at NYU where, where we're just going deep diving into film history and all these different aspects. And everything I'm learning there, I'm 
consistently relating to the films that were important in, in my own life, uh, films that uh, have always sort of resonated with me and that I've always, a little bit like boxing, Bryn, sort of tried to understand why I like something, even though I, I know maybe I shouldn't, or I know not every aspect of it is something that I, that I completely agree with, but I still like something about it. I've, I've often compared this uh, to the experience of a, of a sommelier in sort of engaging with wine in a way that you know, you know you like something, but you're endlessly thinking about what about it it is you like. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons these Rocky sequels have always really stuck with me throughout the years. I think for me also, because I mean, yeah, I'm an outsider as well. I've only lived in the U.S. for 10 years, but I was completely inundated with American culture just, just by virtue of we didn't have any channels in Canada, really. You know, you have the CBC, you have the French channel for nudity if you're looking for that as a, as a kid uh, for sexual awakening. But other than that, all of my cable was Seattle cable. Or if I'd go visit my grandparents... 250 miles away, they had Detroit cable. So I am learning about America the way it wants to project itself through advertising and cultural, um, just, just, just what, they, what they're trying to shape their own perspective of who they are. And I see Rocky as really like a powerful distillation of this. And yet at the same time, there's something so, how do I put it? I don't know if this was your experience, like how you came to, I mean, anybody who's young listening to this, uh, you know, they're streaming everything. Everything is available. But when we were kids, you'd go to video stores to find stuff. You had to talk to people to find stuff. The Internet wasn't available to cross-reference material. And I happened to have this situation where something called Wilderness Video was available, which was all throwaway garbage movies for the most part, B-movies and below. And what I found was comedies, mainstream comedies in theaters were no longer making me laugh, but B and C-level movies striving to be meaningful were absolutely hilarious to watch. Like I'd rather see bad movies fail that we're striving than big budget movies playing it safe sort of hit for average <laughs> to use uh -huh. a baseball metaphor <laughs> and and so what i kind of love about rocky is the first movie is intended to be rocky has a racist trainer he throws the fight and it's about the corruption of boxing and you had a bunch of really like good people around him producers the director who said no, let's go back to the drawing board and rework that script a little sly. And it gets crafted into this thing that is, you know, Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire screaming up Stella, but it will be Adrian, very much playing a Brando kind of character and having these quiet moments, these sensitive moments, the ice rink with Adrian, the, the conclusion of him having the personal victory of going 15 rounds with the Muhammad Ali stand in Apollo Creed and the love of Adrian that triumphs over him losing the fight. But once Stallone becomes a star and it's the biggest box office hit of 1976 and wins best picture, then Stallone really gets to have carte blanche to do what he wants to do. And that's where we go with the sequels that I find is just so fantastic to get on that ride because it's so crazy in a way. 
Uh, absolutely. And one of the things that you had brought up in on your episode here in this podcast uh, previously, when you tackle just the first Rocky film in itself, is just how tied the film itself is with its star text, right? Yeah. Uh, with the story of Stallone and sort of stomaching all of this rejection in creating a new sort of American mythology with Rocky, a film that ends up being extremely effective. I mean, just hitting every single note perfectly, I mean, yeah. technically, uh, thematically, narratively. What is fascinating to me about the sequels is that they all try to replicate that formula for success, but really aren't as effective enough. Like the, the medicine is diluted as you keep on watching these movies and the ideology sort of creeps in over a lot of the narrative and, and dramatic elements that make the original so effective to the point where when you're rewatching these films after a long break, the ideology sometimes packs a bigger punch than, than the drama that, that made the original so effective. Well, and so, I mean, you have the first film in 76 with the sequel, Rocky II, in 1979, we're staying in 1976 with his rematch with Apollo Creed. Then three years later, 82 is the third film, bringing in Hulk Hogan. He becomes super rich, big montages, modern music. Then for four, 1990, Rocky is going to solve the Cold War. I mean, if only there were a real Rocky to help us solve it, other than communism solving it for communism. And then you're going to, oh, I'm sorry, 1985 was Rocky IV. 1990 is going to be Rocky V, where Stallone is moving into a trainer role. And, I mean, it's 1976, Rocky was on the brink of retirement. He's stayed on the brink of retirement ever since, but he just doesn't go away. And I wonder, is coming back to do the same story over again and try to improve it in Stallone's mind, various ways. I also kind of, it's hard not to come to the conclusion he just didn't have a lot more original ideas. You know what I mean? Like there weren't more characters to come up with beyond Rambo and Rocky. So he just has to go back to the well over and over and over again. And that's particularly intriguing to me, given that like Pauline Kael would compare him to Marlon Brando in 1976 when he's 30. But clearly Stallone sort of can go from A to B, and that's the full extent of his acting chops and really directing-wise. It just doesn't seem like he's a very diverse filmmaker in any sense. He, he kind of has the one story, doesn't he? Well, but that's the story, I think, that's told through the Rocky sequels in the star text, right? Where I think Rocky as a film is very much a product of its own time. And I think the sequels, while still being a product of, of their own time, they're also a reflection of Stallone's career as an artist and where it finds itself. So you have that redemption narrative in the first one, and Stallone keeps on going back to this world that he built, this sort of ensemble that he has around these characters, and keeps on having this separate adjacent dialogue with his career through these characters that, you know, I'm sure if you're not, a fan it's probably not that interesting but it's not something that that i would um look at as a lack of originality i think that's something that directors in this sort of new hollywood auteur mode that we saw in the 1970s also exemplified we can say the same thing bryn about woody allen 
who also stars and directs and, and is just hugely influential in every part of his films. And they're all more or less the same thematically or yeah. at least engage with the ideas that, that, that you know Woody Allen is sort of engaging with throughout his career. Uh, to an extent, Martin Scorsese, although the star persona isn't there, Scorsese is very much behind the camera, but you can really tell the preoccupations of, of Scorsese as an artist chronologically uh, through his films. That's something, again, that, that is really exemplified by that generation of 1970s filmmakers of which Stallone is part of. We can't separate Stallone, the artist, from Rocky, the commercial product. They're married. And that is fascinating to me because a lot of franchises that, that happened really don't retain that. Star Wars doesn't retain George Lucas after the first three, right? Jaws doesn't retain... Um, Steven Spielberg after the original. Rocky's able to do that through through generations, through decades, and that's what I think sort of sets this apart. Well, it's really interesting because uh, you know you you bring up Spielberg. I mean, Slava Zizek makes this point somewhere in his writing. I forget which book it was, but that it's kind of the same story over and over and over again. Like like the most traumatic, important event of his life is his parents divorcing. So consequently, you keep seeing this paternal figure having to claim responsibility of his kids and it's like <laughs> it can be schindler's list you know i do care about you i've been this neglectful businessman but i want to make a list to claim you infantilized you know it, it's so strange or i mean so many of it even jurassic park it's just a theme you see it in indiana jones when James Bond comes over with Sean Connery, and it's the same thing, a neglectful father. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, we're definitely not exploring anybody else's psychology. We're in Hitchcock's psychology. We're, we, it's a completely self-contained psychology. But I agree, you know, part of the, the beauty of, of Rocky, and I think part of the problem to a degree, is I wonder how much he is blurring the lines. Is he able to compartmentalize very successfully who he is as the son of a beautician and a kind of crazed astrologer mother um, as he's searching for masculinity, as he's searching for his identity in America, where you know here he's the Italian stallion. He's only half Italian, actually, which is kind of interesting. I think we've seen other artists who are a mixture of things, have a really interesting perspective. But here Stallone just claims vibrant Italian stallion sort of identity. It's not like J.D. Salinger where it's half Jewish, half Gentile, and you see a little bit of anti-Semitism in his work, but not much. It's always a little oblique. Um, with Stallone getting rich, uh, trying to break into Hollywood, trying to be meaningful and and this drive he has to make it it does make you emotionally connect to this character in a way that you wouldn't in other stories like once he transforms into the action figure rocky from the softer version of the first two films it really becomes something else like it becomes like a like a professional wrestling movie like it feels like a Vince McMahon WWE movie almost more than like, I, I don't know, it, there's something about it that that has its own trickly quality that is particularly fascinating that, 
I, I can't think of other films that are similar quite to it in it's still drawing from the well of the original Rocky, but also where it's going is something, something that stays very nine year old fantasy rather than like an adult kind of. Right. It, 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 there's this sort of arrested development uh, that I think you, you could cite um, in a lot of these films, but that doesn't take away for why I think they work. I mean, these are movies that, again, I think the first conversation we have with them is sort of this fascination on, like, what is going on here? Hulk Hogan is in Rocky Three. There's a whole James Brown musical segment in Rocky Four. What happened to this franchise? What happened to that Academy Award-winning film from the mid-'70s? But at the same time, I think the way... The reason these movies, especially these sequels, are remembered in a way that the Jaws sequels are not remembered or I'll, I'll bring another franchise, Psycho. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, sure. it has a number of sequels with a lot of the original cast involved. Um, those sequels are never mentioned, but these Rocky movies stay as part of this uh, collective psyche. And I think it's because of that uh, willingness to engage with that ideology, that willingness to engage in three different levels, where even if you're not American in the way that, that neither of us are, Bryn, uh, although we engage with American culture, not only through watching movies, but also, I think, in our own particular fandom of boxing that also is mired in all of these American myths uh, throughout the ages, I think what's fascinating is how these Rocky movies, you don't have to be from the United States to be able to sort of catch up to that uh, ideological conversation they're having. They're having also very distinct conversations around, as you note, masculinity and specifically race uh, throughout these films. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I, I love sort of diving into them. At least when we get to Rocky II to sort of kick this off, it's a movie that really exists as a transition, as a connective tissue between those auteur-driven movies of the 1970s that are still hung over from Vietnam, that are still hung over from Watergate, right? Uh, Stephen Benedict, your, your co-host in, in the previous episode on, on Rocky itself, goes into this idea of just the United States really getting over a very tumultuous period in its history. What's really interesting about the sequels from Rocky III on is that they very much form part of that, um, and Benedict, I think, cites it as well, cinema of recuperation that comes with the Reagan era. But Rocky II is a connective tissue in that it still looks like a dirty movie from the 1970s. It yep. still looks like like uh, a little bit like Midnight Cowboy, right? Yep. Um, it, it's, if, if the first Rocky movie is a Frank Capra title, that is shot by, I don't know, uh, by Friedkin or Scorsese, that it looks like a Scorsese movie from the 70s. It looks like, like Mean Streets, but instead of having that Scorsese cynicism, you go back to that sort of Frank Capra myth-making. That's one of the reasons it stands out in 1976. Rocky II still retains a lot of those elements that, by the way, are very common in 1970 sequels. If I told you, hey, Bryn, let's re The Godfather was great, uh, let's give uh, Coppola a call. Let's make a sequel to The Godfather, and it's going to be a prequel and a sequel. And by the way, Brando isn't in it. That sounds insane. That sounds like the worst fucking idea I could come up with sure. for a movie. And it works. Now, on the flip side, you have Jonathan Borman's The Exorcist 2, 
that swings for the fences and just fails entirely. I mean, that, that movie does not work. And you have these sort of sequels, French Connection Part 2, um, all of these titles in the 70s uh, that still try to retain a sense of a film that can stand alone. And Rocky 2 is that. Rocky 2 isn't an action movie in the way that Rocky 3 or Rocky 4 is. Rocky 2 is a self-contained drama that, that whose biggest flaw is that it doesn't have that down ending, that sort of negative tinge from the original. It just goes full on fairy tale down to that double knockdown ending that I think all of us as boxing fans look at and sort of groan whenever we see. But it has that fairy tale magic. I'm still glued to the screen, even though I'm rolling my eyes. Well, and it even opens. I mean, you can tell Stallone is at the helm where he had the biggest selling film of 1976 and it won a pile of awards and he's a massive star. Do I really need a five minute recap of the previous film to open up Rocky two? Is it re like, does he really think there are people that are going to the sequel that have never seen the first Rocky? Only Stallone would go in that direction. You can imagine every producer being like, you really want five minutes of the last scene of the first, yeah, I really, uh, uh. okay, Sly, whatever, like, works for me, but I, but I agree with you, I like the look of Rocky too. I just rewatched it, I hadn't seen it in a long time, I think it's my least favorite of all of the films, but I agree, like, it doesn't have any of the fun, cartoonish quality of the, the remaining sequels, and it just doesn't have the heart of the first one, but it, it's not a bad film, it's just uh, you just know exactly where it's headed mm -hmm. in a way that you didn't feel in the first one. And I kind of felt like Rocky is trying to have it both ways in that you're this guy whose career record is like you've had 20 losses. And suddenly it wasn't kind of a fluke that you went 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Now it's like, no, I am the greatest heavyweight ever even though i'm five foot seven and 170 pounds and off i'm i'm on my way to rocky three and the montage of just plowing through everybody <laughs> you know when i'm 40 years old or whatever it makes absolutely no sense but i feel like he wants it's not enough just to be the moral winner now he needs to also be a, a not just a moral winner and a saint but also an actual winner and that feels like a transition from the 70s values to the 1980s where oh, yeah. Yeah, we absolutely. can't root for you unless you're a fucking winner. So Stallone, you know, follows that cue and off we go. But I think part of that and to defend him a little bit is that that fairy tale story did happen. Rocky won the Academy Award. As yep. you note, he goes overnight from a guy that that not that long ago had to sell his dog and is is sleeping on, on a bench at, at the Port Authority bus station. He was in a porno. Like, he's still that guy. It, that's not that far removed. He goes from that to the A-list, from winning Best Picture it, it, in a packed year in the 1970s. So that fairy tale story is somehow validated by what's going on in Stallone's life. Now, crucially, how do we end up with a Rocky II, right? I think in the same way, I think the more interesting question is how do we end up with, uh, with the, the Godfather part two? But you had those, a lot of those conversations happen in the late 70s and mid 70s. Well, you know, Jaws was great. Let's go back. Jaws two. let's see what happens. Let's try to make a drama out of it. Crucially, 
after winning the Academy Award uh, for Rocky, when was that, 76, early 77, the next title that, that Stallone comes out with, he takes himself a little bit too seriously. And you see these hints of ambition. It's called uh, Paradise Alley. And the film just does not work. It does not work as a drama. That's Stallone trying to be really that late 70s auteur and not really connecting. It just doesn't work. What's fascinating to me is after that doesn't work, he goes back to Rocky II. He goes back to the rematch uh, to sort of reclaim this uh, this initial success in a way that mirrors the film itself. Uh, and I think you see this in, in the lives of many boxers uh, that whose careers are cut short many times very young. Uh, the, the longer you go on, even if you don't know how to retire, the more dangerous it gets because they don't know what else to do. Rocky wants to become an actor and fails terribly at it. He just, he's, he's awful at it. Um, and there's nowhere else for him to go from those original ambitions he had than back into the ring with Apollo Creed in a rematch, which is exactly, of course, what Stallone does going back to the Rocky franchise in Rocky II and ends up taking his career long-term with through that uh, sort of archetype. And it's so interesting, isn't it, to see somebody like Stallone have Rocky act in commercials and be a terrible actor, and you're kind of like, Stallone has been endlessly mocked for, for his acting, and here is this self-awareness, self-criticism, is it a way to offset? I mean, is it some sort of meta-commentary? I don't know, but it's really weird to see like it's a really interesting place i mean stallone is signing huge deals with tobacco companies to be smoking in all of his movies around this time like he he's filthy rich off of where he's going in his career he's about to just steal money from the industry to, to essentially remake rocky as arm wrestling movies over the top you know he's gonna so be a, good Oh my gosh, so that's another movie amazing. that's on basic cable forever. I'll, I'll sit down and watch that no matter what. Breathtaking. And, and you know, <laughs> bringing in bodybuilding people to play the arm wrestlers. But again, just... There's a the divorce drama in the middle of that? Like a custody fight? No, that, oh, I, that's that's a whole other podcast we have to get into. Yeah, I think, I, think we sh I think over the top would be a good one. I mean, there's a sense of struggle and combat... <laughs> But it's essentially a Kramer versus Kramer remake. If you watch it. It, 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 it really has that same DNA, but there's like huge dudes arm wrestling and trucks. You just have to love his ambition that he's just swinging for the fences with the most outlandish material. But I mean, yeah. Okay. So Rocky two, he comes back. He's able to get to his feet at the count of 10. Apollo Creed suffers his first loss of his career and uh, we're on our way to Rocky Three. I mean, what's your feeling after Rocky Two? I mean, neither of us were born at that time. I mean, I think I was. I think it's 1979, so I was born a few months after it came out. But where do you think in Stallone's mind he's think? Is he already mapping out Rocky Three? Is it suddenly like I need to be the top dog now for a film, or? Like it just it, it it just seems like a very strange place. Like the perennial underdog Cinderella character. Now we need to know that he never was a Cinderella character. He was a diamond in the rough who's actually the greatest boxer that boxing has ever had. Yeah, yeah, and in a way that doesn't really make sense. You know, every time he beats someone, those people just fade into obscurity. Uh, but as I say that, as a boxing fan. 
you you also have to sort of step back and realize, wait a minute, didn't that happen to George Foreman? I mean, George Foreman was this just like huge, larger than life figure, loses to Ali, and then we don't hear from him for like 20 years. He comes back fat Christian selling grills and like messing dudes up way later. But that's that's sort of what happens to all these uh, Rocky characters. And that that sort of brings us into the 1980s, right? Where I think these movies stop being dramas. Rocky II had an ambition. It had a dramatic uh, project. Whether it fulfills it or not, that's a separate conversation, right? By the time we get to Rocky III, we get the 80s Stallone, which is no longer that sort of pudgy guy you saw in Rocky I. This guy is like negative one body fat. I mean, this guy is just a machine. And if you see a lot of the the behind-the-scenes documentaries about it, uh, this is a very active, conscious decision that Stallone is making for this role. You see the vanity sort of come through. All of a sudden, the guy is just like dripping in baby oil in every other scene with his shirt off. And it's the same thing in in all of these different 80s movies where Stallone is no longer that, as you had cited, Pauline Kael next Brando. No, he's an action star now. And the industry is working very differently. Right now, the interesting actors aren't a Dustin Hoffman. It's not really a Robert Redford, a Warren Beatty, right? That's not the interesting actor you want to be. Now you want to be this sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, this Superman, that almost superhero that comes in and just roughs people up. And that's where we get to Rocky III. It's a fantastic sort of transition. And it takes the series of films in a very specific way uh, that I'm still trying to to come to terms with. Aesthetically, let's just go into, I think how Rocky three completely breaks with the mold. So you mentioned Rocky two, the, the opening, the opening titles, uh, you have the recap of the original Rocky. I respond to that. Honestly, uh, let's remember how we first saw these movies. I didn't have YouTube to sort of remember these, these films at this point, you don't have home video to sort of remind you and get you in that mindset. I think that opening of Rocky two and even of Rocky three in going back to the climax of the prior film, gets you in that mindset. And it really wins the audience over, I think, almost immediately. Rocky Three is fascinating because from there, we go into this music video. All of a sudden, there's this MTV aesthetic and this montage-driven, quick-cut storytelling where through Survivor's Eye of the Tiger, which is an iconic song, again, talking about the decisions that they get perfectly right. Yeah, Through this song... They tell the entire story of Rocky's evolution from a guy that can't do commercials to a guy that's in the Muppet show. I mean, it's a completely different character from the guy stumbling in his lines in Rocky 2 to that opening montage in Rocky 3, which is actually taken a lot of those, a lot of that footage is taken from act from Stallone's actual ascent into stardom, right? Which is another sort of fascinating way of you don't know if you're looking at Stallone or Rocky in that opening montage. Right. No, that's interesting because you're right. I mean, both of these guys are, I mean, it is impossible to separate Rocky's prominence in the culture with Stallone's. Um, You know, and it's no accident that, I mean, Stallone's character has dethroned an even better version of Muhammad Ali in the sense of that guy was an undefeated knockout artist where it sounds as though Creed had never had a competitive fight in his life. He's, you know, a, a huge, the, the first fight is happening on the bicentennial of 1776. So it's America, America, America. 
Creed is the face of America. Boxing is still the most popular sport in the country, it feels like. Rocky has not just dethroned him or assumed that role, he's transcended that role. Presumably, Rocky is the most famous face on earth after the second fight, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we're in an interesting place where Stallone is envisioning this fictional reality where he's chasing it in his in in reality with with entering the culture um, with Rambo with with these action movies that are a big hit and with offering a lot of sort of comfort food for the country as it's figuring itself out from the 1970s moving into the 80s Reagan era America and Stallone is as reassuring a figure of what America is doing as any any I think iconic actor at that time right I mean if anybody is you know I think often when I watch Tom Cruise movies part of the fun is this is somebody whose sexual orientation seems to be they look at themselves in the mirror grinning and Stallone has a similar kind of thing about him right that you can see him masturbating in the bathroom with an American flag you know draped in an American flag and it's possible if not likely and yet he will also film himself doing it with the Rocky oh, yeah. character. Crucially, that eroticism is definitely a subtext in Rocky III. And I think that's been commented. There's memes about it where the way he shoots male bodies, including his own, there is a, a, a very homoerotic subtext there, whether people want to admit it or not. I mean, it, it, you don't see male bodies shot that way, certainly not by the director themselves. No, and I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously the... Him and Apollo running in the in the ocean and embracing—it's amazing. But I mean, uh, there's a lot of incredible homoerotic subtext in like Top Gun, which is, I think Pauline Kael said it's it's not even like a it's like a recruitment poster as a film for the Air Force. There's something like that that Stallone has it for America. And I mean, as you began when we were discussing this, to say. For two people that are not American to see to see this representation of what it is to be patriotic, I mean, I still don't know what it is to be Canadian other than I'm not American. It, <laughs> like, as, as far as the world is concerned, that that's where it begins and ends. Oh, you're not American? Okay. There's nothing more to really say because I don't know what it is um, beyond maybe going to to watch the South Park movie in the theater I hadn't watched the show uh -huh. but the idea that there is a war that America needs to blame Canada for everything and invade Canada Canadians loved being made fun of in that film <laughs> not that they were being made fun of any more than Kazakhstan is being made fun of by Borat because that's not what he's doing but the idea that anybody would blame us was really funny and to be made fun of by these brilliant satirists was really funny. But flip that, that if America was the problem, how Americans would feel if you attacked their patriotism or mocked their patriotism or said there's something weird about their patriotism. It's not funny. It's, it's one of the least funny things that you could bring up to an American. So mm -hmm. I feel like Stallone taps into a lot of this with what Rocky is, and it makes you wonder what is, as you're saying about his vanity, um, just that he's the ultimate hero with no flaws. Uh, what is this hiding? Like, what is this covering, this kind of bolster? And um, 
And even the plastic surgery, the body has completely transformed. This is a time where kids who were, you know, I was four years old this time. I'm looking at Michael Jackson and saying, am I going to change the way he's changing as I become an adult? Does everybody change this much or only really special celebrities? They just, their talent just transforms them physically. Stallone is like 38 years old and his body is 10 times better than when he was in the first Rocky. Is this what happens to everybody? It's it's very interesting to me that that there's this line almost blurring like plastic surgery and money and celebrity. They're, they're transcending even being humans. Like all Michael Jackson is going to do in the near future is messianic music, right? Like, and it's kind of <laughs> what Stallone is doing too. Like, fuck the stuff that made us popular. Now we, the way we're deified, we want to be that figure. We want to be a, a deified figure that has the reverence of sort of a prophet or something. It's very interesting. And I think that's something that, that we have to bring up in, in why these movies work, right? If you go abroad and you bring up a movie like Top Gun, that doesn't have anywhere near the relevance or appreciation than even a Rocky Four does, right? And and I think crucially is because Top Gun, and I, this is coming for me, I, I had to re rewatch it. Let me rephrase. This is coming for me as I had to rewatch it in preparation for an interview I was going to do on, on the sequel, which is now delayed for TBD during this pandemic. But Top Gun is a movie that is, frankly, retrograde like yeah. really it's 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 just so vulgar in its in its simplicity um it, it looks like a child's movie and you're watching it overseas and you have to think like is anyone buying this bullshit like who, right. who actually sees this and and can't see through it when i watch the rocky sequels yes there's a there's an immediate element where i'm having that conversation but in all of these sequels probably with the exception of rocky 5 because that does suck yeah entirely but but all the other sequels it retains a connection to conversations about race and masculinity and crucially vulnerability in relation to that masculinity and again that's why rocky 1 works that's why rocky 2 feels different because you still see that vulnerability but by the time we get to Rocky three, there is very little vulnerability. I mean, almost none. You have self-doubt and it's about, you know, reconnecting with yourself and really overcoming that Rocky four, maybe vulnerability of can I beat this machine Frankenstein monster from the Soviet Union? But Rocky three is is effective not only in in showing us that the artifice of Stallone because anyone that has seen the first two Rocky movies that is actually thinking through watching that opening montage goes, what the hell am I watching? This guy couldn't get through a commercial. What, he's doing like credit card commercials now? But crucially, apart from that, and this is why the montage works, I think, and I think in many ways, this is what makes Rocky III effective. Uh, Soviet filmmaking knew that for montage to be effective, you needed to create a counterpoint. You needed to juxtapose the images, sometimes having a direct conversation with sound. And it's something that going back to like early sound essays, even by Sergei Eisenstein, as he's sort of theorizing the role of, of sound in the feature film, this montage works very, very closely to that sort of Soviet school of early filmmaking, where 
Eye of the Tiger is telling you the narrative that's about to unfold in front of you. You're reintroduced to a character that is barely recognizable, but you also have Clubber Lang. And through no dialogue whatsoever, through a three and a half minute long pop song, basically a music video, the entire exposition is drawn out in front of you. That's an incredible feat of filmmaking. That is really, really, really tough to do. And a talented filmmaker is making this happen. So these movies, yes, they might not be good. They might not be uh, you know, Academy Award winners anymore, but they're effective. They're endlessly effective. And I think that's what makes them interesting. At, at one point, interesting becomes better than good as you sort of rewatch these movies. And how Clubber Lang is portrayed in sort of coming up sort of being shown as this just absolute uh, menace in the ring, very much like uh, Roberto Duran and uh, and George Foreman, very much in that mold. This is pre-Tyson, of course. You know, we can, we can make that anachronist uh, relation to Mike Tyson. I think that's fascinating. And it, that brings up the, the topic that, that you touched on very briefly in the last Rocky episode you did on this podcast, Bryn, in mm. what type of antagonist is Clubber Lang, Mr. T.S. Clubber Lang. And I find that fascinating. I mean, what were your reactions watching Clubber Lang then and now as you receive this movie? Well, I think, I think you're right to go with Tyson. I mean, it predates Tyson because Tyson really wasn't on the radar until 85. And then he was, you know, just totally took hold in 85. But yeah, Clubber Lang, I think you're right. I mean, the racial component to this I mean, having having a white world heavyweight champion was timely. It, it, there still was the premise of like Jerry Cooney and Larry Holmes, the Great White Hope, and it making Jerry Cooney way more money than was commensurate with his talent level at that time, right? I mean, it was just the racial angle that was being played up, not so much by Cooney, but certainly by Don King, and and I think by America trying to salvage. A segment of America salvaged this trope that we you know we seem to be. There was a lot of discussion about race in basketball. That what, basketball seems to be dominated by African Americans. Boxing is being taken over. These these American sports, this sort of uh, earlier version of America that's being clung to. I think in the rhetoric of make America great and and restricting voting <laughs> towards no, the gold what golden city on a hill shining city on a hill it very yeah. much is that Reagan line that, that, sure. that sort of comes through that subtext and even something like Back to the Future right of connecting back to things how how things used to be uh, Stephen in the last episode you guys brought up a great point in how audiences respond in Rocky One to Apollo Creed in the bicentennial coming out as uh, as George Washington and yeah. when, what that reaction is like and how that lands. Not being American, not being white, that doesn't land in the same way to me that I can understand it being uh, coded for other viewers. So that's fascinating as, as you sort of like grow up and watch these movies outside of yourself on, on the different conversations these films are having. And this one specifically is having a conversation with an archetype of African-American representation on screen, which uh, uh, film historian Ed Guerrero in his book Framing Blackness calls the brute Negro, right? This sort of uh, menace, monster-like, very crass black man that is crucially sexualized 
Because Apollo Creed, he he stands in for Muhammad Ali, but you don't really see a sort of racially coded uh, dialogue or even threat there. I think it's it's vital to sort of assess the the role of the insults that Clubber Lang uh, starts spitting out towards uh, towards Adrian that have a very vulgar racial connotation. And that chivalry that you spoke about in the original Rocky, if Rocky telling, uh, you know, girls that he finds, hey, watch out. These guys, they might take advantage of you. That male chivalry is sort of offended and 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 disturbed. So crucially, this is a film that that replaces the Muhammad Ali stand-in with a very old racist archetype that that's been around for for generations in cinema. No, and I think Stallone is playing to his base. I mean, I think how many conservative voices were there? in cinema. I mean, it's, it's still completely dominated by liberals. I mean, pretty extreme liberals in, in many cases. Um, Stallone, I think, has a very conservative viewpoint, and I think he wants to offer something almost like John Wayne-like in The Searchers for, for his audience. And I think he was able to make it so entertaining and fun and silly and stuff that everybody could get something out of it. But I think that as you're keying in on, the fundamental message of how he's looking at race is pretty scary. And the the dog whistling with Clubber Lang, making his aggressive action towards Adrian, just his overall surliness is enough to kill off Rocky's trainer, (laughs) Mickey, you know, God, he's so threatening that like it killed Mickey. It triggered a heart attack. Somebody should hold him liable for it. Well, That's how horrible we need to we need to take vengeance. The film has to take vengeance for these sort of uh, insults towards towards what Rocky represents, and it it happens, you know, throughout the franchise. Even in Rocky Four, when we have another death spur on the the main fight after Apollo Creed uh, dies. Well, and, and I think in the third one, I mean, you have a kind of not quite subservient, but certainly like the trope of Apollo Creed has been defeated maybe twice, but definitely in the second one. So now he'll be the nice guy. He'll be the sort of helper role. And it's sort of like interesting. So you have the nice, friendly African-American guy against the inner city surly guy. You have like the the African-American guy who whites can be okay to cheer for versus this other guy that Reagan America is telling you to to move the fuck out of cities to avoid because th- this guy is everywhere and coming for you sort of thing. So I think that there's, I mean, I don't even know if it's a dog whistle. I think it's pretty explicit where Stallone is going with the Clubberland character. And, and I agree. I think he's, he's definitely taking a lot from what George Foreman was in the mm-hmm. rumble in the jungle. I, I don't think that Stallone is is really that great at originating ideas, but he does like to pull things from the culture or allow them to come together into composites in interesting ways. And certainly, like, Mr. T was just an incredible force on the screen. I think Mm. who wasn't mesmerized by him? Enough so that he became a major cultural figure. I mean, he's at WrestleMania when WrestleMania is about to launch professional wrestling to be as big as any real sport in America, right? I mean, a global phenomenon, a juggernaut. And there's Mr. T as like a guest wrestler with Rowdy Rowdy Piper or something and 
has his own TV show, has his own breakfast cereal, like, <laughs> you know, and, and he's about to be on the A team as sort right. of a weird character on that. So it's, it's, it's interesting the sort of magical touch that Stallone had to kind of elevate people, you know, like Mr. T was just his bodyguard, I believe, before he uh, set him up for this role of Clubber Lang. But I mean, he he's mesmerizing to watch. And I think it also probably in many ways for boxing, if not casual sports fans, definitely laid the groundwork for them knowing the right coordinates to identify what Mike Tyson was marketed as, where they went, oh, yeah, I've seen this guy. It's a real life Clubber Lang. Uh, absolutely. And you, you brought up the, the role. Uh, also, we have to bring in the the evolution of the Apollo Creed character here. And it reflects the depiction of African-Americans on screen in the 1980s in films like 48 Hours, uh, Beverly Hills Cops, uh, what's the lethal weapon. Uh, and again, going back to Ed Guerrero, and I, I, hate, I hate to go back to the same person, but he was very influential in, in my understanding these films from these terms. Uh, he wrote an essay some years back called uh, the, the Black Image and Protective Custody, uh, which is basically going after these buddy cop capers where African-American agency always has to be, A, mostly desexualized in these films, yeah. and they can't really operate on their own. There has to be a white protagonist uh, there with him. So you basically have this African-American character be a, a sidekick or an inspiration of sorts through these movies. Again, these Rocky titles, the sequels, what makes them interesting is how they evolve as a product of their own era and a product of where Stallone's career is. And it, it absolutely uh, it absolutely subscribes to that with how Rocky III not only gives us a new African-American antagonist uh, through this brute Negro archetype. Um, that I, I also want to add, it's, it's not entirely African-American um, influenced. I think there's a, it draws from a lot of the antics of uh, Roberto Duran during yeah. the, uh, the Sugar Ray fights yeah. and being so vulgar and even sexually explicit, that sort of raw masculinity. We joke about, you know, Stallone dripping in baby oil. So did Duran. You, yeah. you you see Duran's footage of that. It, it's a it's a weird sort of thing to to look at. So I do think there's a lot of Duran in Clubber Lang. I think there's a lot of this racist archetype in Clubber Lang. And I do think there's that ferocity of George Foreman and the way he like crumbled Frazier uh, in that match. It's it's all built to that archetype. And in the in the popular psyche, and this is why I bring up Tyson in the conversation. Tyson to this day has this popular appeal among the general population that will outlive what he did in the ring. And I think it's because he more or less engages with a lot of these pre-existing ideals that we see in a character like Clover Lang and these sort of racist archetypes from fiction in the past. In a way, Tyson, and I know he probably doesn't, uh, doesn't intend to do this, but he he connects with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's been able to sort of outlive his relevance in the ring. Oh, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, I also think it's particularly interesting what you raised about the desexualization of the sidekick. You know, Apollo is a devoted husband, so we think. I mean, the sequels of Creed and Creed II tell us that there was an extramarital affair with Bill Cosby's wife, as it were, you know. The, and that's even a surprise. That's a plot twist. I'm like, no, not Apollo. Oh, he'd you, never do you, it. You would never think 
of him even being remotely sexualized outside of those homoerotic elements in, in the way he's shot in the third and fourth installment. Right, right. No, absolutely not. And, you know, it's it's interesting because you raised like Eddie Murphy as Nick Nolte's buddy in 48 Hours. And Eddie Murphy and a lot of these, like Beverly Hills Cop, the gay subtext in that is really strange. Like where... Eddie has this white woman that really wants to fuck him from the beginning of that movie. And the only person that he seems really connected to is like the buddy that he's investigating who got murdered, where they have this weird scene where they have, I think, a couple of drinks. And then there's this really drawn out scene where they're saying, I really love you. No, I, I really love you. And you're thinking, Eddie doesn't want to fuck anything in this movie. That's a woman. And has a real affinity with the Brunson Pinchio character who's the most overt stereotype of a homosexual. And then Eddie's about to make his name hugely on the back of being one of the most vitriolic homophobic comedians in the industry ever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting. No, it's it's fascinating. Just it, again, we're talking about Rocky Three, a movie that's very easy to dismiss, but it's having all of these like spiderweb connections to parts of American culture and American identity, of race, of gender, of masculinity, vulnerability. Uh, going back to something that 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 you had touched upon in terms of um, how you have to make things right after Mickey dies, right? You sort of have to revert things to the way they should be, to normality. And the impact, I'm sure, of some of those audiences seeing uh, Apollo Creed showing up on the, on the first movie dressed up as, uh, as George Washington, as a sort of like desecration of this holy image, there's a connection there, or let's call it an undertone. And I'm sure it's not, it's, it's harsh me even bringing this up, so I, I feel a little bad about it, but there is an undertone in something like Birth of a Nation, where you have that sort of like scene, those very racist scenes in like a black Congress of African-Americans, uh, you know, behaving in, in these horrible stereotypes and in the Capitol and the Ku Klux Klan coming in and saving the day and reverting things back to normality. One of the things that's, that's problematic, for the lack of a better word, about these Rocky movies, as much as I love them, because I do love them, as much as I like watching with them, is that they follow these sort of narrative structures a little bit. <laughs> that, that element in Birth of a Nation is also part of the reason why Rocky 1, 2, and 3 work so well. Mm. Well, and I mean, let's not forget that Rocky in 3, after he loses to Clubber Lang, Mick, shortly before his untimely death, Mickey, says the, you know, the worst thing to happen to a fighter happened to you. You got civilized. So what do you need to do to retain your eye of the tiger, train in an African-American gym. <laughs> let you be a tourist. In this. So the way real fighters that are not civilized fight. Okay. Um, interesting where Stallone is going here. Like, I can't believe he's getting away with this, but I guess it was 1983 where people were like, that's cool. <laughs> it's a conversation that's happening. And, and, and I'm sure the industry itself hasn't really come to terms with it as these movies are getting made. And I think that transitions us to Rocky IV, which is probably the most of its era movie in this entire series, where you see this and you're like, where's Ronald Reagan? You know, where, where's that cameo coming in? Because this is very much of its time. What are your early memories of sort of responding to something as openly jingoistic as Rocky IV, Bryn? 
Um, I think it was, I think it was tying into a few things. One is that I was getting into Cuban boxing and learning that some of the best boxers in the world were not turning professional and they had a diluted, as America would frame it, a diluted moralistic position in why they wouldn't, that they believed in communism and, um, you know, that they would just show up at the Olympics, beat the fuck out of everybody, you know, just just be unbelievably dominant, even though this is some unbelievably poor third world country where everybody's miserable and apparently everybody wants to leave because of this tyrannical revolution, et cetera, et cetera. And I had no reason not to believe it, part and parcel. Like, would the American media lie? No, it's a democracy. Nobody would lie. People would hold them accountable for it. So... As I went into Rocky's projection of what communism was, this system that nearly, you know, the the Cold War, the Cuban Revolution, sorry, the the Cuban Missile Crisis being the closest the Earth has ever come to nuclear oblivion, I just thought, well, the way he's portraying the Soviets, they'll cheat at everything. This guy's a steroid-ridden machine of a human being. Um boy, this is what it's really like. How daring of Stallone. He must have infiltrated Russia to, to expose the Soviet Union, and he must have got this guy to, you know, kidnapped him or something. Dolph Lundgren, this clear Soviet specimen, not some PhD guy from Sweden. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's like dating oh. Grace Jones, I think, at this point. Yeah, no, no, not that guy. No, this clear is like it's like Iceman from Top Gun except he's a Soviet he's even taller and his hair is even bigger than Val Kilmer so I just remember going into it just being like Rocky like America could only be good like that there's nothing at all conflicted about what they stand for it's it's just purely good and anybody who'd be in opposition to it clearly by definition is evil and um, so I thought it was like a real fun sort of American patriotism. I found it amusing. And, you know, he doesn't do drugs. He trains in the, the mountains of Russia, which actually was very close to Vancouver. And, and the final fight where he's fighting uh, Ivan Drago in Moscow is actually where high school basketball would happen, like in Vancouver <laughs> as well. Um, I, I knew some people that were Russian stand-ins in the audience for that, which was really? kind of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in the background. I'm in. I'm. I'm in an extra. It's somewhere in Creed Two because they shot part of it in uh in Barclay Center for Wilder. Um, Ortiz won the first fight. Uh, so I, I'm somewhere in the background there. That's my little contribution to the franchise. Oh, that's really fun. I was definitely there as a journalist, but I mean, maybe I remember you're, them. You're there in the background. That, oh. No, that, you're there somewhere. You might want to check it out. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll avoid that. But no, um, I just remember Rocky Four being a hell of a lot of fun. I thought the music, I mean, again, it was very MTV music video kind of, um, you know, just the ethos of it. I just felt like I'm watching a really fun music video about a boxer and Rocky might be even more ripped than he was before. Um, I love, I think it's the greatest ring entrance ever, the Apollo Creed with James Brown. But I'm just thinking I've never seen a ring entrance like this in my life. 
And, um, you know, it's interesting just to, I, I think as he's moving into explicit, like really explicitly uh, commenting on 1980s Republican propaganda for the Cold War, that he's kind of sounding like Michael Jackson, it, like where Michael Jackson is going with the album Bad. And again, this messianic man in the mirror, you know, if we, we can look at ourselves, we can make a change and just let's make a change and come together. Like it's so unbelievably Pollyannish and naive and condescending at the same time that I, I just loved it as like a, a six-year-old when it came out. And by the time I was eight, I was like, I can't believe adults take this seriously. <laughs> and and I, I still feel the same way as you did when you, when you rewatched it at eight, right? I, I still can, can see past through all of these things that obviously it's just like dripping in, 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 in issues and sort of flaws, but it's still an effective movie. The movie still works in so many ways and the way it sort of structures has a, has a inventive villain draws out this uh, these characters. The ensemble is still there. It, it's a movie that I'm I think is as rewatchable as as possible. I think it's probably the most rewatchable movie in the entire franchise. Not to say the best, uh, but it, it's it's fascinating as you as we go back to it. We go from the very dirty streets in Philadelphia in in the mid 1970s, but now we're, it's been I think less than 10 years. This movie comes out in what like 85, and we're mm -hmm. in the middle of Reagan era. In the first 10 minutes, Rocky's living in a mansion with a robot in it, which is just completely removed from where he's been uh, prior to this. So the entire, it's the same characters, it's the same ensemble, but the country has changed so much. And what we don't have here is that um, dialogue on race and American culture, but you have this sort of Reagan era Cold War that had disastrous consequences for Latin America, just an absolute nightmare. Uh, for countries below the United States, it, it sort of goes into that foreign influence propaganda that Reagan's United States is embarking on at a time where, as you note, Stallone's career is explicitly doing this also through his uh, his Rambo franchise. So it's interesting in how, yes, it, it, it doesn't have that connection about a movie telling us a story about the situation among American characters, but it's about projecting these American ideals abroad, which is, I think, why it's fascinating for folks like ourselves that can still respond to the movie while acknowledging the trick that they're trying to pull over us. Well, and I mean, you're right, because the backdrop of this movie in a lot of ways is you have America struggling to put the pieces together of having faith in their government after Watergate. You have Vietnam, which is just such a wildly unpopular war of America struggling to reach back to sort of what it had in World War II, where they've avoided the majority of the war. So they've avoided the, the casualties and having their country be decimated the way Europe has just been flattened and there's no industrial competition. And then they win the war and in their mind, save everybody. And there's off they go to sort of this is the last like good war that America has had, and it keeps reaching for it with Vietnam. It keeps trying to package and sell these wars. And Rocky is this way of kind of and like it feels like wrestling is just entering the culture where it's like, 
I mean, how did wrestling take hold where we go from two guys wrestling, who's going to win? Like, Daniel, let's let's like have a bet who will win to who cares who will win? Who has the better backstory? And let's mm. not give a shit about who wins. It's just more fun to insert a plot line. Let's not let's not wait around for somebody with a real plot line. Let's just play make believe. It's more fun. And I think Rocky has a big element of that. Like one of the ingredients that makes it so satisfying is it's just like wrestling. It's a controlled experiment, just looking for what will be the most psychologically reassuring or satisfying. And for that reason, as propaganda, it's tremendous fun. You know, like <laughs> like it, to root against the Soviets and what they're doing and to see Stallone's wife being Ivan Drago's wife. <laughs> you know, this gorgeous six foot tall Danish woman playing this freakishly cold, ice cold, um, you know, almost murderous intent. I mean, when these unbelievably Aryan individuals are, are like with Dolph Lundgren just taking out Apollo Creed and killing him. I mean, it's also boxing trying to put together the pieces after Mancini and, and right. Kim. You Absolutely. have a very high-profile death in the ring. You have um, Tex Cobb and Larry Holmes fighting where Howard Cosell is saying, I just can't call fights anymore. This is this sport is too disgusting. It's too bloody. It's too violent. That this is just not civilized. To, uh, you know, I remember being at this age watching A-Team regularly and a lot of action movies where sex in movies of any level is totally going to be restricted and I'm not going to be able to watch it, but I'm able to watch on, on Saturday mornings and just movies coming on unbelievable amounts of violent violence and carnage. As long as we're the good guys, violence is great. America is getting to a point where violence is something that is just everywhere. I'm playing with GI Joes. I'm playing with transformers, a team, everybody's shooting guns, but nobody ever seems to get shot. Which is a really interesting concept. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think that's how it works. Spoiler alert. No, I don't think it's how it works. But there's no victims to it that you that you really have to empathize with. The only people you have to empathize with is America's might is right, and uh, it's it's similar to Rocky. That Rocky has to again. Te he's been teetering on retirement for you know close to twenty years now, but he needs to come back to avenge uh, th this buddy of his who's been killed in the ring. And and Rocky is just showing, in case you thought there were some racist tropes in Rocky III, no, 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 no. He's willing to risk his life to avenge his best African-American friend and, and assumes his African-American trailer. Don't call him racist for anything he's done in the past. Um, there's just so much to this that I find uh, still just... It was amazing to watch it as a six-year-old and think that th these were complicated issues that somehow I could struggle to grapple with to uh, from eight years old onwards, just being like, this is such an amazing fantasy. And what it says about a country where, you know, a, re a reality show celebrity became a, a, a president because celebrity seems to trump everything. 
Yeah, you know, you'd brought up a, a movie like The Searchers in the passing of this conversation. And it, it reminds me, as you're saying this, to something that James Baldwin says in, in the documentary I Am Not Your Negro. It's a fantastic documentary that goes into a little bit of the history of representation uh, and dialogues of, of race on screen. And James Baldwin's own experience watching Westerns growing up. And I think that's, that's I think, for us as foreigners, watching a movie like Rocky Four, part of that experience in that you watch it, you're loving it, but then at a certain point you get older and you watch these films and your relation to them changes as your own relation to a lot of these myths and, and narratives around nationality starts to evolve itself, right? There's a, there's a saying that we have in Mexico uh, that goes, uh, I'm paraphrasing, Mexico, poor Mexico, so far from God, but so close to the United States. Where that I think like perfectly states this Mexican psyche of even if when we don't want to, we continuously define and understand ourselves in reflection to our neighbor in the north. And that's just a fascinating sort of duality and conversation that we have. And all of these things, as I'm watching these movies, I'm having these conversations myself. I might not be aware of it, but again, why I'm in love with these movies is even the things that, that I can look past and look beyond, there's a dialogue there in my relation to cinema that I'm, I'm very fascinated in exploring. Yeah. And I mean, for, for me too, I think for Canadians, it was the neighbor to the South is, you know, we're, we're conflict avoidant. What is our defining national trait is that we apologize too much. <laughs> you know, like it's, all of these things that are just so not the American stereotype. And, you know, I've, I still to this day, I, I like how overtly friendly many Americans are that I encounter and the, the complexity of the country. I, I have to marvel that no country on earth could have produced a Donald Trump, right? Like, I mean, no, no country that's ever existed could have produced this. And so there, there are qualities there that are just so exaggerated and uh, whereas I just feel like, like what's Canada, it's just non-threatening as if it, it's, it's not that it's like de-sexed or defanged, but it's sort of like most people, my sense of it, and I don't mean offense by this, is that when I would travel to other countries and they'd say, oh, you're speaking English, you're American. I'd say, no, I'm Canadian. Is like I was being treated like, like I was a, a member of the Special Olympics. Mm. You know, where it's like, you inspire us because you got it's so nice what you guys are doing with that. <laughs> there was that feeling of, of sort of it's inspiring how kind of you could never compete at the Olympics, but you have your Olympics. And, it, you know, it was that kind of feeling. And again, I don't mean in any way in a derogatory sense against the Special Olympics. I, I, I think it's terrific. There's Special Olympics, but it was interesting just to be so non-threatening and where Stallone wants to go it seems is just that if he's an emissary of the American dream and and what America represents everybody will topple to his goodness and his saintliness like there's just no flaws in it right how do you criticize him aside from he's not the brightest person other than that Rocky just has no flaws and I think that it, that leads us into Rocky Five a little bit, which is, um, at least for me, the most disappointing film in the franchise. I think Rocky Five. Once we get there, we're out of the 
we're out of the 80s. It's 1990. Um, it's still a little bit too early to go into that sort of financial recovery that, that we have from um, from Bill Clinton in the mid 90s. You now you have a sort of hangover from the Reagan era, and you have a little bit of uh, reconnecting to the roots, where Stallone in his career is sort of maybe has already peaked. Uh, I don't know if that's fair to say. I know in the early 90s, he still had a lot of great titles, but he's trying to step back from the superhero element in these Rocky movies. He steps down from being director in this title. He directed the second through the fourth, hires back John Avildsen, who did a fantastic job directing the first one. You'd even mentioned in, in your previous podcast, Bryn, he comes out with something like The Karate Kid, which is a family remake of Rocky, and totally. incredibly effective. So effective, so incredible. And I still think like Pat Morita's performance as Mr. Miyagi is like, it's just amazing. It, it's, everything is there for this movie to work, right? Everything that we want to see in a Rocky Five, if we're still watching these things sequentially, they try to do in Rocky Five, but crucially, nothing works. This Not movie tries to be a drama and it tries to be an action film and fails on both accounts. Uh, it, it really, when I, when, I, when I think back on the influence of these films and the impact I have, the, sorry, let me take. Sure. When I think back on my connection to these films, Rocky Five is the one most distant to me. As opposed to Rocky Two through Four, it's not, not, it's not that they're not good. I just don't find them, I don't find this one particularly interesting. There's just nothing personal in it to Stallone. I mean, I think even in the the latter sequels, I mean, if this is the last film that we'll delve into for the this, the direct sequels, I mean, Rocky Balboa seeps apart into something else. But I, I feel as though there's something about Stallone that growing up with him and seeing somebody like him become successful, like this guy, this weird-looking guy, who's wearing these big heels because he's a little insecure that he's short. His face is paralyzed from, from birth with forceps um, injuring him when he's sort of delivered into the world. That guy making it with that sort of droopy face um, was something that you just felt good about. Like you just sort of looked at your own flaws a little bit and just thought, maybe this makes me who I am. And like, it's okay to be different. It's okay not to look like... Robert Redford or, or A-List. I mean, I think in the 1970s, there was this move that like having character actors star is an interest. It's more interesting than the good looking people that are not as talented. Why don't you know, why not have Dustin Hoffman be in The Graduate instead of Robert Redford, who they wanted sort of thing. Stallone seemed to exemplify something like that with the way he talks, the way he moves, like everything is a little silly but somehow it just worked. And when it worked, it was really emotionally powerful. And even in the latter films, I mean, in Creed, where he's he has that great speech where he talks about that his whole life is on the walls of these old fight posters where his career is. And he just doesn't know who he is without being a boxer. And, you know, even getting cancer, it's like it's there's some mercy in him being able to check out of an identity that is grasping for any kind of meaning in a life without Adrian, without boxing, without having money or anything. With Rocky V, 
you can feel that they're trying so hard to get at something. So again, we have Mike Tyson's story with Don King and Customato, and, and it's one of the most popular stories that boxing has ever had. So, so Stallone just steals it wholesale and casts a white guy to play him, casts a guy from Oklahoma to, to play him in an up-and-coming boxer, again, blurring the lines of fantasy and reality. Morrison is a big steroid-ridden uh, knockout machine, kind of like Tyson, but he's blonde and he's blue-eyed and um, has a certain charm. And guess what? He alleges that he's the, the great nephew of one of the most famous Republicans in Hollywood history with John Wayne. <laughs> he's the Duke. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff, both in the fictional content and the sort of meta commentary that, that Stallone seems to be trying to stack the deck with. And, and as you say, it just doesn't work. There's Adrian. She doesn't really know what to do. Like the, she doesn't really have a meaningful role anymore. Her kind of meaningful role sort of ended with Rocky two mm -hmm. where you know, she wakes up out of a coma after trying to tell Rocky, you, you can't fight because you've got a detached retina, again, stolen from Sugar Ray Leonard and why he's <laughs> having to retire. Um, but you can't fight. And then when she wakes up, basically the first words are, go out there and win. Go out there and win. We don't know why she's had this conversion exactly. Like <laughs> maybe the medication that knocked her into a coma from giving birth to their kid. Who knows? But uh Rocky Five just seems a kind of lost Rocky looking for some street cred. Like, again, it feels a bit like a Halloween movie where I'm going to put on that old leather jacket and that old black hat and maybe smoke a cigarette again because secretly the tobacco companies are paying him millions of dollars to endorse tobacco. But, you know, OK. And um, he's going to be side by side with Tommy Morrison, who's going to become this super powerful heavyweight champion, but he just doesn't have the heart of Rocky. The people just don't love him as much as Rocky. So it's, again, just more masturbation about, Rocky, we need you back. We need you to come back and save us. And he does, but in a street fight. Yeah, and that, I think that really helps kill a lot of the the illusion and it's not that rocky five breaks with the formula it really doesn't F from the opening credits we still have that the previous recap from the film it still ends in a fight there you know, there's that reconnecting with the with the original sort of milieu from the first rocky how it's changed you have this storyline that really doesn't work at all for me with a rocky jr character uh, who's getting bullied and has to stand up for himself. So th there's there's an aspect to it that maybe Avildsen probably draws a little bit too much from his Karate Kid days. And yeah. it just seems forced in there. Yeah, I think part of why Rocky V just isn't as rewatchable as the others, even if it's not as quote-unquote problematic, is that it's not a particularly effective film in in capturing the audience and sort of reminding us why why we like watching these characters even though this is the last time that a major character like adrian is is in the series of films she really like you mentioned she's really working in the margins of this um unfortunately i think that the adrian role as you noted uh with steven in, in your rocky episode i think in the first film you need her to make the movie work 
in in the second film, she's in a coma for half the time, so you, you lose a lot of that. You you lose a lot of the strength uh, from the original title by by marginalizing her. But it's still a drama. That relationship is there. From Rocky Three on, she has a monologue maybe where she expresses doubt, and Rocky has to sort of assert his masculinity, whatever it is. But crucially, I think those moments in Rocky three, four, and five, and why that Adrian character is so important to the series and the ensemble is that whenever Adrian is on the screen, it connects directly to the vulnerability of Rocky one of that vulnerability that Stallone has. It's something that in, in, in your writing on, on Rigondo, uh, you mentioned Bryn that he has the saddest eyes you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and I think when we talk about boxing and our own connection to boxing beyond men are hitting each other, we start to get into places that connect to this sort of vulnerability with our own masculinity and understanding that with others. Uh, especially right now, as we're, we're recording this around the COVID-19 pandemic and we have fights happening without audiences where you can hear every wince of pain as we watch these men go into the ring by themselves and sort of have to fight this out on their own. This is something that I think I respect boxers tremendously in the real world because they're doing something they're forced to, to, to make a better life for themselves in a way that connects with their masculinity in a way that I'm not sure I could connect with if I were in that position. I'd like to think so. And I'm trying to find myself in the eyes of these boxers. So when you wrote about Rigo, I think that's one of the, the aspects of your writing that, that I really engaged with and sort of trying to understand our own connection with masculinity through the travails of these guys. It's something you also wrote about when you met Tyson, I think in one of your books, and, and sort of understanding yourself and your own relation to these boxers. For me personally, all these movies are coming out in my childhood Growing up being Mexican outside of Mexico as Julio Cesar Chavez is just demolishing everyone in a fighting style, very Rocky like. Right. I mean, he, how many jabs did he end up eating against Meldrick Taylor for his own storybook ending straight out of a, a Rocky movie in a last minute victory? So in, in my own sort of coming to terms with what does it mean to be from Mexico and what does it mean to to have these issues around masculinity and in my own fandom in boxing, I have that with the Rocky movies. I think ultimately what connects me to this franchise is this connection that I have with both boxing and the Rocky ensemble. But when it comes to Rocky V, those moments of vulnerability, they're not there, or at least not enough, or not done earnestly enough for me to, to really engage with it. Even in Rocky Three and Four, those moments exist. By the time Rocky V comes around, it's just so completely divorced from that aura. And I do think that by Rocky Balboa, as you mentioned, that gets recovered. I think that's why Rocky Balboa is effective. A movie that comes in in the mid-2000s when, when Stallone's career is really irrelevant. Uh, I think there we get to recover that vulnerability. But uh, one of the reasons why this Rocky V title just doesn't work is that connection that I have with the sport itself and this series is completely lacking. Yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, it's interesting because in the first Rocky movie, as I was researching it, I noticed that Stallone has a Caravaggio painting in his apartment. And Caravaggio's great insight with regard to 
creating scenes from the Bible, like creating little movies. They're like movie trailers, really. There's always a story that's being told um, as much with the light and shadow as with what's directly happening with the action is it was revolutionary for him to take gods and cast real people, real struggling people, homeless people, prostitutes. They're, they're the, the people who are cast in all of his great artwork. And I think for Stallone and a lot of really effective storytelling is we want flaws. We want them to strive big, but we want to know how an ordinary person can do something extraordinary. You know, Forrest Gump, for example. Um, and I think where Stallone goes wrong in, in the sequels, at least in the sense of, I mean, it's not wrong. It's just a different place to go. But you sense how vulnerable he is in the first film, as you say, in love in connections with friends, with mentors, with his trainer. This is a vulnerable guy who's living in an apartment that smells because the sewage is not <laughs> working properly. And he's frustrated and he's being he's been so humbled in his life. And what Stallone is tapping into is the ways in which he's been humbled. He's got these big dreams and aspirations. Nothing has worked out for him. He sold his dog because he can't pay for food or anything. And I think he captures that vulnerability in a way that I, I could still rewatching it find very moving and very moving the small moments of reconciliation, of forgiveness and trying to hold on to something that is caring and, and loving between Adrian, between Mickey, um, with himself, what he's holding on to, that there's hope going forward, even as he's, you know, getting up there in years. But as he transforms himself into this action figure and superhero, I think you have like the opposite thing that Carvaggio was doing, which is the ineffectiveness as propaganda of making human beings look like gods in artwork. That's really hard for people to connect to, as opposed to the illiterate masses flooding churches and seeing on the wall people who look like them, that these biblical figures are ordinary sinners like them, where it's much more effective. And I think that like Rocky V is sort of him trying to go back to, to this uh, gritty Philadelphia, but you can just feel that this is not a world Stallone knows anymore. Exactly. It's not earnest. It doesn't come with that sense of honesty that you even bind those fleeting moments in the third and fourth installments. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You do. Because you can tell like Stallone did not come up even though I know he was in like Switzerland at some private school or some, some weird background in his youth. But but you do sense that he does connect to something. When he is running through those streets of Philadelphia and not all of those people or none of them have signed a release to see like this weird sort of unknown actor, quasi-porn actor, is running through the streets on his way to the steps, um, the reactions are powerful. Like you can feel... There's something special happening. And again, Stallone is stealing a real thing from from what, you know, from from boxing with Joe Frazier. This is Joe Frazier's adopted hometown. It's mm -hmm. Joe Frazier who's running up those art steps. So he's stealing all that. But whatever he's doing just has this kind of alchemy of effectiveness. And Stallone just wants to hold on to it because he kind of doesn't know where else to go. And that's the last sort of connective tissue to Rocky V that I think you still feel something towards is just 
I feel sorry for Stallone. No matter how rich he is, I'm kind of like, it must suck that the important thing you've done that you're still desperately holding on to was 14 years ago in 1976, and you don't know what else to do. And I have to be honest, that's kind of, that's a conflicted relationship I have with some of these boxers that I used to root on in my childhood that are now retired. You know, I feel that way about Duran. I feel that way about Tyson right now, that he's supposed to come back into the ring at at age 50 plus after a very troubling uh, last act of his career. Like that sadness you wrote about Rigo, obviously in his case for a very separate and culturally specific reason. But this is a, a connection that we have with boxers. And I think ultimately I ended up having uh, with Rocky and his ensemble in watching and, and loving these movies, even with all their problems, that ability to sort of connect that. Let me take that ability to connect with those feelings and with those own questions that that I engage with from time to time. Ultimately, I, I think it's something that revitalizes the franchise, what is it, 10, 20 years later, when Ryan Coogler, uh, African-American filmmaker coming out of the success of his film, Fruitvale Station, has the opportunity to make any movie in Hollywood, anyone. What's the meeting he asks for? What's the project he fights for? He asks his agent to cost a loan. He asks for Rocky. And he basically walks in and says, hey, listen, I know you have this personal connection with this character. I do too. And I think Kugler's connection with, with Rocky is probably very similar to the one I have. And that's the excitement I have in watching that, that Creed title in that I'm engaging with someone responding to the same films I grew up with in their own way. And in Creed is another example of a very meta text in which Kugler as director is drawing from elements in his own life, having a dialogue with Stallone's career and the Stallone movies. But that's, of course, for another time. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun. I I think we need to find some more. I think over the top is maybe where we need to go next. (laughs) Arm wrestling and trucks. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel. I appreciate your time with this. No, I appreciate the, the invite. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.